0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University
1: of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Uh, thank you, everyone, for coming. And I'll just take a moment uh, to tell you a little bit about how we decided to make like a CARTA meeting entirely on human imagination. And this is one of those things that um, it seems to happen only in San Diego, where uh, two people, and I'm talking about myself, who I'm a professor in pediatrics and cellular molecular medicine, turns out to be in a meeting sitting together with uh, Sheldon Brown, who's gonna hear as a first speaker. And Sheldon Brown comes from visual arts. So a scientist and an artist, we start talking, and uh, we realize that we have something in common. We are both fascinated by human imagination. So I make a challenge uh, to Sheldon and say, well, can we put this in a scientific contest? And we start planning uh, about um, a meeting like that, and we realize that most of the time uh, when we try to understand something, uh, if it's unique or Uh, enhanced in humans, we turn on to compare to uh, our closest relative, living relatives, such as the chimpanzee. And comparing to other animals is difficult, especially if you're talking about cognition and imagination. So this time, I mean, I think you're gonna hear lots of speakers talking about imagination in modern humans and also in uh, extinct in humans, such as the Neanderthals. And we hope that uh, the combination of all those speakers, all this knowledge will, will help us to understand a little bit about ourselves and answer those questions that Ajit posed to us.
2: Good afternoon. Imagination makes huge demands on the brain. And when we use imagination, there's neural connectivity that occurs between many areas of the brain. But not all brains are equal. So people who have high creativity brains have different networks from those who don't. This means that the study of imagination and the study of brains is not a linear thing. face recognition in objects um, requires a certain uh, uh, proportion of brain power that we call the face recognition area. And when people are thinking about faces, this is what is activated. Now, archaeologists, and I'm an archaeologist, can't access brains. All we can do is to have a look at items of material culture as proxies for imagination in the deep past. But how far back can we go? And it's perhaps important um, or relevant in a group like this to say, once upon a time. <laughs> Three million years ago at Makapan in South Africa, this little jasper pebble was found and the question, of course, is did Australopithecus have a face recognition part of the brain? And about 300,000 years ago, this flint hand axe with a shell in its centre was found in the UK. And here the question is: Was the fossil shell perhaps more important than the tool itself? Did it spark imagination? And about 300,000 years ago in Israel, at at Ram, this little object that some people think was a figurine was found. And the use-wear traces on it were analysed by Francesco Derrico and April Noel. And they discovered that it had in fact been purposely uh, modified. It had been ground. And there were some nick marks around the neck. What they also found, however, was that red powder tends to come off when this is ground. And so Maybe it wasn't a symbolic artifact, even though it had been purposefully modified. Now, the important point about all three of these objects that I've shown you is that they represent outliers, not regular patterned behavior. And if we're thinking about imagination and symbolism, we need to know that this is shared behavior, So all of these objects could be accidental, though of course they give us a very nice clue as to how early imagination may have arisen. Proxies for imagination appear very regularly in the last 100,000 years, so there's no problem about recognizing them then. And they tend to multiply exponentially after that. So the first ones I'm going to show you are from Deep Clove in South Africa. The oldest of these engraved eggshells is 100,000 years old, and they were found up till about 60,000 years ago. We know that they're water bottles because some of the openings down on the, the bottom right there... Um, have the ground openings just like the ones in the Kalahari today, where you see a woman pouring water into this uh, water bottle. You can see that her water bottle is a little decorated there too, whereas the older ones, in fact, have much greater variety of decoration on them and perhaps engaged more imagination. Refitting suggests that the Deepkloof water bottles were highly decorated. You can see that the patterning was all over them there. What I think is really important is that the engraved eggshell occurs at many sites. So we see it here at Drift and at sites up in uh, Namibia. There you see a pathway up towards the west that has engraved eggshell, whereas the perforated marine shells that I'm, I'm about to show you have a pathway that goes up the eastern part of southern Africa. They don't only occur in the eastern part of southern Africa. They go right the way up to North Africa and into Israel as well. So let's have a look at those. These perforated marine shells that are probably beads are 72,000 years old, and yet the ones further north are even older. Some experimental work by Marion Faharan has suggested that people imaginatively strung these together in different ways. The oldest ones at the top were strung together in little pairs like that, um, the ones in the middle were strung back to back. And then the younger beads were strung in even a different way. Again, using imagination. I think it's important that shell beads are also found at Subudu and Classy's River in South Africa. So once again, we have an established behavioral pattern. The Subudu ones are 72,000 years old. The class is one's a similar age. But there's much other technology that, that occurs in the last 100,000 years that demonstrates the imagination of people at the time. You've already seen the Blombos engraved piece of ochre that is 72,000 years old. There's other engraved ochre from Blombos too. So once again, we see a pattern there There's engraved um, ochre at Classy's River and at several other South African sites. At 100,000 years ago at Blombos, paint was manufactured in an abalone shell, and this was red ochre mixed with a number of um, ingredients, including an unknown liquid. We don't know what the paint was used for, but we do know that it was a compound complex mixture. At Sabudu, there's also paint. It was found on this flake here. And this paint was made out of um, ground red ochre powder mixed with cassine. Cassine being a milk product. Was this perhaps the first tempera paint that was ever used in the world? I think it may have been. At Subudu, there are also many imaginative adhesives made out of things like red ochre and resin, or red ochre mixed with graphite, mixed with other products, sometimes fat, a whole variety of adhesive recipes. Also at Subudu, this time at 77,000 years ago, People imagined how they could get rid of insects that buzzed around their bedding annoyingly at night, and so they placed aromatic leaves, in this case cryptocaria, on top of the sedge bedding, and these aromatic leaves are slightly poisonous and probably kept the mosquitoes away. something that has only briefly been mentioned up until now, allows our imagination in a different way. Because when we see burial, we know that people were imagining ancestors. They were thinking about the after people, as well as the afterlife. The earliest burial that we know about so far comes from Israel at school and Kafsa. And here the burials, which are repeated, as many as 10 at a time, have been buried with shell beads, perforated marine shell, mm. and red ochre as grave goods. Then at Border Cave in the Lubombo Mountains of South Africa at 74,000 years ago, an infant was buried with this Kona shell which had been perforated perhaps as a pendant. The little sketches over on the left were from the excavation in the 1940s. Through time, burials became much more complex. And here in Russia, 34,000 years ago, we see one of the most beautiful um, burials that, that has come to light so far. It's a young man on the left, that's the archaeological example, covered with 3,000 mammoth ivory beads with fox canines and um, bangles made of ivory. And the reconstruction on the right suggests that, uh, that these decorative items may have been stitched onto the clothing that he was buried in. But when we think of imagination, we can hardly separate it from fantasy. And probably the earliest secure archeological evidence for fantasy is the lion man from Germany 32,000 years ago. This is an ivory figurine, the figurine of a, a human figure with a lion head. This kind of therianthrope, because the mixture of animal and human features um, defines a therianthrope, it's a manifestation of, of an abstract concept, but it really is the first evidence that we have of true fantasy. It's not the only one, though, and at Apollo 11 in Namibia, 27,000 years ago, The motif of a feline is used again. Here on the painted slab, you see half human, half feline. The head is a feline, and the back legs are human. And this slab was buried in the little cave that you see up on the top left there. Now all the evidence that we have for imagination and highly developed technology, some of which I've shown you, can be used to imply that we had complex cognition and modern brains way before any of this evidence that I've shown you, right back to 300,000 years ago when Homo sapiens first arrived in the archeological evidence. But for once, let's turn this idea on on its head and say, material culture itself is not passive. And so when people manipulate items, when they work on material culture, this is stimulating their imagination and their cognition. And by doing, we develop the brains even more, we develop imagination further, and it's this kind of thing, that leads to um, increased uh, technological development through time, increased imagination, increased creativity. And thus we can say that technology and cognition and imagination engage with each other reflectively and reflexively. And the reflexivity that we see between the technology and the cognition and imagination gave rise to what I've demonstrated to you, the exponential growth of material culture by 100,000 years ago. So all of the things that I've shown you, beads, paint, art, engraved ochre, engraved ostrich eggshell, adhesive recipes, Bow and arrow that I haven't mentioned, new tool classes and burial, all of these appear very rapidly by 100,000 years ago. We may have had the humble beginnings of this earlier than that, but certainly we get definitive evidence by 100,000 years ago. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much. What I want to talk about is dealing with the organization of human society and the nature of human society. Um, and I believe that if we think of it in general evolutionary terms, we see that human, the organization of human society is really quite different to that of our nearest um, primate cousins, the chimpanzees. I think the, manifest, the, the results of that difference are clear, and there are two. One of them is that we are able to build up societies of far greater size than we find among any other uh, close primates, and greater complexity. And the second one is that we, have, we think of our social organization as lasting far, far longer than the life of the people who might, come, who might be part of that society. I believe that both these differences are due to the fact that much, many aspects of human society are imaginary. And therefore, I'm going to start to look at imagination. Uh, in a certain amount of detail. The notion of imagination is very often linked with creativity and quite rightly. And it's also linked with individual creation. That's not what I will be talking about. I'll be talking about something quite different, which is shared imagination. How the the same imaginary features are shared within a group. And how that comes about is due to a number of, uh, of uh, factors. But I think already, if we remember the slide we've seen about pretend play, we can see that both, there seems to be a general predispositions in humans for pretend play. But that pretend play gets slot in with things which are instituted within the culture and the society of people uh, who are doing this pretend play. So I think we have to think of predispositions uh, enabling us to take on historically created structures uh, like schools. Uh, it was obvious in the last picture in that series um, about um, Pretend playing. We have to think of this articulation between the two kinds of things. How, uh, as I was saying, how this articulation, so what I'll be talking about is not individual imagination, though obviously it's involved, but the sharing of imagination. And let me go back to what I started off with. Uh, saying that there are many aspects of human, uh, human social organization which have to be imaginary. The first uh, factor of this, which I want to talk about, is the notions of the groups we often be- think we belong to. Uh, let me start off with the examples of clans, which we find in various forms or, uh, in many human societies. Now, one of the interesting things about humans, uh, about clans, is that they're thought of as lasting in time far longer than the life uh, span of individuals. That already means that they have to be imaginary, because obviously if they were attached to the individuals, they would sort of end or have no great continuity. But this would also be true of nations, For example, one can think of the Greeks as a nation, quite apart from their territory. Having gone on for very, very long periods in time, the Greeks continued. They passed on from one another something called vague Greekishness it's very difficult to define what that might be and very interestingly it's very difficult even for the people who think this is extremely important to define it so again we, can, we imagine and I think I can use the word that there is a level at which social continues uh, in, on a quite different time scale than the life, the bi- our biological life. That doesn't mean... Uh, and there is another factor which uh, is even more important. We continually uh, think of uh, as a very important part of our society is that we have instituted roles. Husband, wife, to use an example which was used by the philosopher Searle, But policemen um, and so on. Now, there's something rather odd about these roles uh, because they can't—they don't seem to have very little to do with what people actually get up to. Uh, People may hate each other; uh, husbands and wives may hate each other, but we we think that there is something about them being husband and wife independently uh, of, of this so we, if we think of our society as systems of roles uh, as, as, as large numbers of roles we realise that we have to think on another level on an imaginary level uh, other than the interactions which has been the greatest focus in, in psychology when people are thinking of the social we have to think of how it is possible that these systems these there are shared systems of the social which don't correspond to anything empirical. I should have mentioned when I was talking about clans, that clans, you know, people can imagine themselves as belonging to clans without anything obvious uh, marking them out from people who belong to other clans, that they usually do not live together, that they're dispersed. Yet somehow there is a level, an imaginary level, at which can, people can think of themselves as one. So... This really uh, presents. uh, This is something which we do not find in any other primates. This is why I would argue that there is that we should stop thinking of human society as a sort of incremental business of getting better and better and knowing other people and knowing uh, the world. There is also a discontinuity. Which means that, w- which I would identify with the presence of that imagination. Having said that, however, this presents a problem. How, uh, for, for what I started off with talking about, which is that I was saying that something very different about human societies, they seem to be able to be expanded to extraordinarily large size in a way that is, doesn't uh, uh, apply. To other primates, and there's also this idea of them cont- continuing in time. Of course, this is not a problem if, by society, we mean these imaginary representations that I was talking about. They can be as large as you like, or as, uh, and, they, and indeed, they are systems which are not tied to particular moments. But I was talking about practical results. How can this imaginary level have practical results, which are tremendously important if we want to understand the evolution of human society? I think the answer comes from the fact that this imaginary level is not as imaginary as it might seem at first. There are what I have called emergences, That is moments when the shared imagination is actually acted out, where people can live in the shared imagination as well as they live in the practical, interactional world uh, which is normal, uh, sort of everyday level. These are very largely rituals which involve people losing Many of the aspects of themselves as individuals in that what characterizes rituals are their repetitions of previous people say the same thing as other people have said. They therefore lose their intentionality. They become kind of elements in an abstract structure, but it is acted out. And at other moments, um, so in normal life or in normal traditional life, People step in and out of the imaginary level to an interactional level, and they're able to hold two quite different ways of thinking about society. This is what, this, this is, what is, is not found in, in, in other primates. And this has practical results. For example if you imagine yourself living in a pre uh, in a Neolithic village and you want to set up another vi- uh, to, to move to another village you have to move to this imaginary level in order to be able to build up kinship relationships with other people people in that other village convince them that somehow there is something in common, and that is moving to another level, to that imaginary level, and then you can move to that sort of place. This, I think, explains how uh, pre-state humans manage to have very f- uh, far-reaching and distant trading relationships. And also, to the other uh, practical level, where, to the other practical factor, which is imagining that your society Lasts in time, that somehow we can imagine that we have a social which lasts in time quite independently of our biological life. It means that there is some point in, first of all, in passing on and accumulating either objects uh, because we are passing them on to people who we don't know, with who, who, who are our continuation but only in imagination, and perhaps passing on knowledge, which then becomes the basis of what um, the, the, the evolutionary biologist Michael Tomasello has called the ratchet effect, that is building up on knowledge which is already there so that it can then be used for ever more complex systems This is basically the the ability in human culture to continue uh, and to accumulate and to advance. So the possibility of stepping in to moments of what is normally shared imagination explains, I think, the most fundamental differences between our society and the society of, let us say, chimpanzees. Thank you.
3: I like to start with this very kind of self-flattering question of uh, how do we get so smart? How are we humans able to think about all of the complex and sophisticated things that we think about? How do we invent them? And specifically, there's a puzzle, because ultimately, we're physical creatures, and we get only physical information from the world, right? So we get photons in our eyes, we get pressure waves in our ears, uh, we get, we're subject to gravity and we bend our toes and flex our knees to try to defy gravity and stay upright. Uh, And we can push on things and exert pressure on the world. And that somehow, through this soup of physical interaction, we end up with really fancy ideas, like we think about goals and principles and truth and justice, and we invent ideas like time travel and imaginary numbers. Uh, How do we do that? How does that set of physical interactions and brains that are evolved for these basic physical interactions, how do they create this wonderful abstract world of ideas? And these abstract ideas are the things that actually make being human so much fun, right? So if you go to a dinner party, and the only things you talk about are uh, physical, concrete things, like if all you can say is, boy, uh, this podium is uh, wooden and solid... Uh, you're not going to get invited back to that dinner party, right? (laughs) The things that we talk about, the things that we obsess about all day long are these abstract things. How do our minds create these? Now, this is a problem that has vexed scholars for centuries. Uh, Plato thought about it, so he thought about how would you teach someone an abstract idea like virtue. And he ends up concluding that it's impossible. Uh, and uh, we can't learn these things, so we must recollect them from past incarnations of our souls. Um, uh, Darwin actually also ran into this. So uh, Alfred Wallace, the co-originator of the theory of evolution with Darwin, uh, gave up on the theory of evolution because he got so vexed by this idea of how brains that evolved for physical interaction, how natural selection could have created brains that then invent symphonies or play chess or do any of the kinds of complex things that we do. And Darwin tried to intervene, writing to Wallace, I hope you've not murdered too completely your own and my child. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. We can, we can save this evolution thing. So how do we actually create these abstract ideas? Uh, I'm going to give you one specific example, and that is how we think about time. Now, uh, I do a lot of work on time. I'm not the only one obsessed with time. The word time is actually the most frequent noun in English. Uh, and that's kind of interesting because, of course, we can't see time. We can't touch time. We can't smell time. We can't taste time. It's abstract. But at the same time, it the, it uh, creates the very basis of our experience, right? You can't experience anything outside of time. So how do we conceptualize this uh, abstract entity? And I'll take it one step further and ask, how do we think about something like time travel? How do we invent that idea? Of course, it's not through physical experience uh, of your own with time travel. It's not because you actually traveled to some other time and came back, and now you can recollect that idea. So here's a story of how we might come up with an idea like time travel. In lots of languages, we talk about time using spatial metaphors. So we'll say things like, we're approaching the holidays, or we're coming up on Christmas, Uh, we're coming up on the deadline. Well, if we're coming up on the holidays, time is a path on which I'm traveling, I'm traveling from the past to the future. Well, once you have that analogy in place, that metaphor, if time is a path that you can travel, a path, you can travel in whatever direction you want, in whatever speed you want. So once you've set that analogy, you can now extend it and think about something that goes beyond what's possible in your physical experience. You've invented the idea of time travel just by extending this little analogy. So there are a couple of ingredients to that story. One is uh, you have to be able to make an analogy between physical experience and something more abstract. But also something has to encourage you, invite you to make that analogy. Something has to say, well, why don't you try thinking about moving in time like moving in space? And then you can go beyond that. How do we know that any part of the story that I just told you is true, that people actually do these kinds of extensions? Uh, Let me give you a couple of examples. Um, In English, we actually have two kind of opposing ways of talking about time. One uh, talks about ourselves as moving from the past to the future. We call this the ego-moving metaphor. And we say things like, we're approaching the deadline. Uh, The other one uh, goes in the opposite direction. We're stationary, and time is moving past us, like a train or a river. We call this the time-moving metaphor. And so you might say something like, the deadline is approaching. Now, in a strict physical sense, if I'm approaching the deadline, or the deadline is approaching me, those are the same. Right. If time is really a unidirectional, one-dimensional entity, it doesn't actually matter which one of us is moving. But in space, it matters. So if I'm moving towards you or you're moving towards me, those two things are different because there's a fixed ground against which we're moving, so we can actually tell the difference of which one is happening. How do we know if people really think about I'm approaching the deadline as being different from the deadline is approaching? Do people really take these spatial metaphors seriously? Here's uh, one hint. Suppose I ask you, next Wednesday's meeting has been moved forward two days. What day is the meeting now that it's been rescheduled? Who thinks Monday? Who thinks Friday? Okay, it's about normal. Um, So if you're thinking of time moving towards you, then moving the meeting forward is moving the meeting in the direction of motion of time from Wednesday to Monday. But if you think of yourself as moving through time, then moving the meeting forward is moving the meeting in your direction of motion from Wednesday to Friday, And we can actually get people to imagine motion in space. So for example, we'd say, imagine how you'd maneuver the chair to the X. And you either have to imagine yourself scooting in a chair somewhere, or you imagine pulling a rope to bring a chair to you. So in one case, you're imagining yourself moving. In the other case, something is coming towards you. And after people have imagined one or the other, we slip in this seemingly unrelated question about time. We say, next Wednesday's meeting has been moved forward two days. What day is the meeting? And what we find is people who have been imagining themselves moving forward through space will say the meeting is now on Friday. People who have been imagining something coming towards them will say the meeting is now on Monday. Of course, they don't know that they're being uh, influenced by this imagination exercise that we gave them, but what it's telling us is people are actively using the spatial image that they created to think about time. That Actually, these two scenarios in time are psychologically different from them. Now, the other thing about how we think about time is that it differs from uh, culture to culture. So, we haven't, humans haven't invented just one way of thinking about time, but we've invented many, many different ways. Let me give you just a few examples. So, uh, in English, of course, we read and write from left to right and uh, it's natural to then organize all kinds of things from left to right. So here I'm showing you pictures of my grandfather at different ages, and if I gave you this set of cards, shuffled them, and said, please lay them out in the correct order, chances are you would lay them out exactly like this, from left to right. We consider this to be the correct order, the correct arrangement. But uh, people who read and write from right to left, for example, people who read Arabic or Hebrew, will organize these cards from right to left. So uh, for them, uh, the direction of time goes in the opposite direction. And just to give you an intuition for this, um, here's a a logo for a nutritional supplement for kids, and you can read this logo very easily, and you can see what it does for your child. Uh, When they tried using this in Arabic-speaking countries, they ran into some problems, because if you read the logo from right to left, it becomes quite problematic and confusing what it does for your child. Now, uh, so far I've given you examples of how time can travel with respect to the body, either left to right or right to left. Uh, But it can also um, travel not with respect to the body at all. So here's an example. Um, This is an aboriginal community in Australia that I had a chance to work with. They live on the edge of Cape York. Uh, They're the Kukta'ur people. And what's interesting about languages like Kukta'ur is they don't use words like left and right. And instead, they (coughs) primarily rely, rely on words like north, south, east, and west cardinal direction terms. And uh, when I say they primarily rely on cardinal direction terms, I I really mean that at all scales. So even for body parts, you would say, uh, there's an ant on your southwest leg, or move your cup to the north-northeast a little bit, Uh, things like that. Even the way you say hello in kukhtair is to say, which way are you heading? And the answer should be something like uh, north-northwest in the far distance. How about you? Uh, So imagine as you walk around your day, Everyone you greet, uh, you have to report your heading direction. Right? That would get you oriented really quickly, right? Because literally you could not get past hello uh, without knowing uh, which way is which. And uh, let's just establish that we uh, don't think like this. So everyone close your eyes for a second. Uh, and I can see you, so I can tell whether or not you've closed your eyes. Uh, point southeast. Point southeast. You can open your eyes. I see points in every possible direction. <laughs> At least some of you are right. Um, that's good. So uh, people who speak languages like Kuktai are actually stay oriented really well. Uh, they can point southeast without hesitation. Even young children can do that. Uh, but I also wondered, how do they think about time? So if they don't think about left and right uh, with respect to space, how do they lay out time? So remember, if I give you this task, I give you a bunch of cards to lay out, what would they do? So uh, here's an example. This is uh, one participant. They're sitting facing south. And this is a bunch of different card sets they've laid out. And what they've done is go from left to right in each case. Here's uh, another participant. I'm sorry. This is the same participant on a different day sitting facing north and they've laid everything out now from right to left. Here's a different person sitting facing east and they've laid everything out coming towards the body. What's the pattern? It's the sun from east to west, right? So for them, time is locked on the landscape. It doesn't stay locked on the body. So for me as an English speaker, if I'm facing this way, then time goes this way. And if I'm facing this way, then time goes this way. And if I'm facing this way, then time goes this way. way very egocentric of me to make the dimension of time chase me around every time I turn my body. Uh, Instead, for the kukhtai, time always goes in the same direction with respect to the landscape, regardless of which way their body is facing. And this isn't the only way that time can flow according to the landscape. So, for example, work by Rafael Nunez here at UCSD shows that time doesn't even have to go in a straight line. So, for example, for the Yupno of Papua New Guinea, time uh, flows into the village at one angle, and then once it hits the village, it takes a turn and flows out at a different angle. And this has to do with the mouth and the source of the Yupno River, which are important uh, geographical locations. So people around the world have imagined all kinds of ways to organize this very basic dimension, right? Whether it goes left to right, right to left, there are vertical organizations, uh, organizations that go on the landscape in all kinds of different ways. Uh, There's a really rich variety that humans have invented around the world. Now, you could ask, how deeply rooted is this imagined time in our idea of space? So if you were to... um, disable the part of the brain that processes a particular part of space. Would that also disrupt our ability to imagine that part of time? Uh, And we actually had a chance to test this idea by looking at patients who've suffered strokes in the right parietal lobe. So here I'm showing you the brain of Federico Fellini after he suffered a stroke in his right parietal lobe. And this kind of stroke often results in uh, neglect on the opposite side of the stroke. If you have left neglect, uh, in everyday life, you might uh, not, see, not notice food on the left side of your plate. You might only eat the food on the right side of your plate even though you're still hungry. You might only put makeup on the one side of your face or shave one side of your face. You might only read words on one side of the page. Uh, people with neglect uh, seem to not notice, not pay attention to things on the left side of space for them. This member of KISS doesn't have neglect as far as I know, but this is how he would do his makeup if he did it. <laughs> So uh, we wondered, uh, how would patients who neglect the left side of space think about time? So we told uh, patients about uh, a guy, David, fictional guy, David, who liked doing some things 10 years ago and will like doing different things 10 years from now. So 10 years ago, he liked strawberries, but 10 years from now, he liked cherries. And they just had to remember these facts. And we had a couple of control groups Uh, We had healthy controls, and also patients who'd had a stroke but didn't show signs of neglect. So let me show you data from the two control groups first. Um, So the solid bars here show you the items that people got right, and everything to the right of the center is things to do with the future. Everything to the left of the center is things to do with the past. The shaded areas are where people made mistakes. Now, uh, of course, both groups made some mistakes, but the mistakes are symmetrical around the the past and the future. Here's what the neglect patients look like. They were heavily shifted to the right. Uh, They weren't able to recognize correctly things that had to do with the past, with the left side of the mental timeline. Uh, And instead, they misattributed a whole lot of things uh, to, uh, to the right. So when you damage the part of the brain that's responsible for representing the left side of space, you also damage the imagined left, the, uh, the time that you imagine on the left side of uh, your body. Now, I've been giving you a lot of examples about how we imagine time as space and how metaphors and uh, cultural artifacts like reading and writing uh, invite us to make different kinds of analogies. But uh, of course, these ideas go far beyond how we think about time, because uh, metaphor is ubiquitous in uh, in our experience. Or right? just about anything that's complex or interesting uh, is at least partially imagined. Uh, and uh, the way we talk about these complex, interesting things is suffused with metaphor. So, uh, if you're talking about a relationship problem, you might say uh, we've um, we're spinning our wheels, or our relationship is off track. Uh, If we're talking about the economy, you might say we need to jumpstart the economy, and the idea is that a quick stimulus is what the economy needs to get going again. Or you might say that we need to prop up the economy, and then you're using a a different set of uh, physical metaphors to think about what needs to happen. Um, when we talk about theories or ideas, we could talk about poking holes or warming up to ideas. Uh, with social issues, we talk about immigrants as seeping into the country as if there's some kind of nefarious substance, uh, or crime as preying or infecting uh, our neighborhoods. And these metaphors have psychological weight. Uh, so, for example, in our lab, we've looked at how people want to approach a crime problem in a city if you tell them that crime is a beast Uh, uh, plaguing their city or preying on their city as opposed to crime is a virus. If you tell them crime is a beast, they want to uh, do the kinds of things you would normally do to contain a beast. So they want harsher enforcement measures. Uh, If you tell them crime is a virus, they want to take a more uh, epidemiological approach. They want to diagnose the problem, maybe inoculate the population, Uh, do do things that are more reform-oriented. So these metaphors have real psychological weight. So uh, coming back to this question of how do we get so smart, um, my answer would be that our brains are masters at doing dynamic opportunistic bricolage. They recycle and reuse machinery that has evolved for uh, simpler perceptual motor tasks. They recycle and reuse the knowledge that we acquire through physical experience, but also... Language is an incredibly powerful tool that invites us to conjure up those ideas and recombine them in all kinds of novel ways because language supplies us with a large stock of units but an infinite ability to recombine them. So uh, I can right now take a bunch of words, put them in a new configuration, and invite you to imagine something you've never imagined before. So I could say, imagine... Um, a circle of hedgehogs dancing the polka on top of a crepe that is traveling through time from Paleolithic times to now to puzzle us about how they were able to make such fine, thin pastry back then. <laughs> now, um, if everything has gone relatively well in your life so far, you haven't had that thought before.
0: Right?
3: <laughs> and so, you're welcome. Um, That is, through the power of language, we can conjure up all kinds of ideas, an infinite set of new ideas, by recombining things from our physical experience and from other abstract ideas we've built in the past. Thank you very much.
0: You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more
3: information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at
0: uctv.tv.